Welcome to NAT Digital Next, and today we're looking at the emerging world of quantum computing. I'm Brad Carr, here in Melbourne, on the lands of the Wurundjeri people, and our special guest Michael Brett joins us from Seattle, the land of the Duwamish. An Australian at Amazon Seattle headquarters, Michael is the global lead for quantum computing business development in the high-performance computing group at Amazon Web Services. I got to know Michael in Washington, D.C. a few years ago when he was running QX Branch and later at Rigetti. I appreciated his ability then to distill the very complex quantum field into digestible terms. And I also appreciated the very helpful and extensive travel advice he gave me about Joshua Tree National Park in California. Michael, it's great to connect again. and Welcome to NAB Digital Next. Brad, it's great to see you and uh, great to be here on the podcast with you. Mate, um, can we start by talking about yourself? Really appreciate if you could perhaps give us a, a synopsis of your own journey and what led you from your earlier backgrounds in aerospace and, and space into quantum and to your current role at Amazon. Yeah, so I started my career in the aerospace and defense sector. As a teenager, I wanted to join the Air Force and had a passion for uh, all things aerospace and sort of complex technology. So I did a, an aerospace engineering degree. And my first jobs were all in software development for defense in various forms in Australia, and also looking at large-scale compute and what that could be used for to do things like probabilistic uh, risk analytics, complex systems design, and uh, looking at trade-offs uh, across uh, very large-scale systems. And through the course of that work, we got introduced to a team that was looking at uh, quantum computing. They were at Lockheed Martin at the time, and they sort of suggested to me and a couple of friends that the, the kind of um, computational work that we were doing and the kind of maths that we were looking at would be well suited to quantum computing. And we had never heard of this term. We all kind of looked at each other and with blank faces went, what's quantum computing? And this is probably back in 2011, 2012 kind of timeframe. And so that kicked off kind of like a, a journey of curiosity to look at this technology get a better understanding for it and you know, could it have an application to high performance compute and where it could go to from there. Eventually, a few of us decided to start a company called QBranch that developed applications and software for quantum computers. The idea being that the quantum computing world was mostly inhabited by physicists that had come from a university background and had extremely strong physics backgrounds in building these devices. But there could be a, an opportunity for a group of disciplined software engineers to add a, a layer of uh, high quality software on top of that. And so we pursued you know, building a company around that idea. And I guess that was uh, one of the very early stages of the steps towards mainstreaming the technology beyond just the domain of the, the physicists. Michael, perhaps starting very much at the introductory level, you know, how should we be thinking of quantum computing? And perhaps how does it contrast to, to classical computing? Uh, quantum computing is still a very early stage technology. Uh, it is an emerging technology. I certainly wouldn't characterize it as mainstream uh, yet, but you know, hopefully that day will come uh, at some point. But at its foundational level, quantum computing is using a different kind of physics to a classical computer. So classical computers use classical physics uh, to do their work, but quantum computers use quantum and quantum physics exhibits some very unusual behavior but we can describe that behavior with mathematics. And it's it's a different kind of math, it's, it's quantum math. And so with a different kind of physics, it means we can run a different kind of mathematics. Different kind of math means a different kind of algorithm and different algorithms mean we can solve problems in different ways. And so this is not necessarily a faster computer. It's not about more horsepower and, and you're running faster, but instead using the, the really unique attributes of the different kind of physics to create different algorithms that give us a new tool in the toolbox that we can work with. 
And so today at AWS, we offer a wide range of different computers. We've got CPUs and GPUs, other special purpose devices, but we see quantum computing as just one more special purpose computer in that, that overall portfolio uh, that we can offer. And that customers will be able to use that for particular algorithms. So certainly we won't be migrating huge numbers of algorithms across to quantum compute, but there could be some like really special purpose algorithms that are run better on a quantum computer. And we mix that together with you know, CPUs and GPUs and get a, an overall performance benefit that we're able to work with our customers on. It's a really important bit of context, I think, that, that we're not talking about the revolution that just supersedes all forms of computing, but rather that it's enabling particular circumstances, particular, as you say, the, the specific algorithms, those particular use cases. I think that's a really important bit of context. I do want to pivot in a moment to the topic of encryption and, and some of the security threats, but maybe elaborating a bit from, from where you were just going, what, what are some of the exciting opportunities that you could see for where quantum computing can be applied, you know, whether in the financial sector or, or perhaps beyond? Yeah, and I'll just reiterate, like this is a very early stage technology. You know, most of the customers of AWS today that are using quantum computers are research customers. So the likes of NASA or the Department of Energy in the US, CSIRO in Australia, universities that are doing computational science work, like research using these the systems that we make available today. So for the most part, the primary users of quantum computers today are researchers at universities and national labs, and sometimes in like large companies that have kind of research divisions that can take this on. But what we're looking forward to and what we're testing are the early stages of some of the, the really exciting applications. And principally, they fall into categories of optimization problems and computational physics or computational chemistry. And optimization problems, you know, there are clear industrial use cases there. Every industrial participant has some variant of portfolio optimization or scheduling optimization or routing optimization that could have some applicability there. But also on the computational chemistry side, there's some really interesting applications around things like material science and condensed matter physics, the way that molecules come together and form, you know, that could have applications in the future in things like drug discovery, adhesives or abrasives or new types of materials that could go into batteries. That's a really exciting area because it's a, it's a very open question of like just how far can we push this technology and what could it mean for us? The reason it's an open question is we've never had this tool in the toolbox to work with before. It's extremely difficult to simulate the way that molecules come together using classical compute. And so by having a different kind of computer with a different kind of physics and a different kind of math, we can do something potentially that we've never been able to do before and simulating these materials interactions. And so that's a really exciting and open question for us of just how far we can push that technology and what it might mean for you know, all sorts of industries that use material science. I think some really exciting potential opportunities that we'll you know, need to observe uh, in years to come, as you mentioned, around drug discovery and things like battery technology, bringing that closer to home for us in financial services. I know I recall you talking years ago around some of the potential for optimizing some of the, you know, the more complex trading strategies, uh, perhaps. Is that the sort of thing where the financial services industry is paying most attention, do you think? Or, or are there other other points you'd highlight? The financial services industry has been one of the leading adopters of quantum compute for the last five years or so, there are teams at places like JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs and Fidelity that have world-class research capability for quantum information science. 
and they're doing science. Like these teams are doing fundamental scientific problem solving into some of the questions around how do we actually use quantum computers and the challenges around loading information into quantum computers. How do we efficiently use them? How do we combine them with uh, other forms of high performance compute? So it's not just a matter of tailoring an existing algorithm, like taking Black Shoals or something and adapting it to a quantum computer. We're past that kind of question now. It's more about how do we get efficiency from this? How do we make it price performant compared to what we can do on the best available classical technologies? What scale of quantum computer would we need uh, to make it relevant uh, to do this kind of work? And so a lot of the questions around that initial translation of a different kind of math to go from classical algorithms and adapting them for a quantum computer, a lot of that work now has been kind of explored. The attention is now turning to, well, what's it going to take to build a computer that's sufficiently capable that can deliver a business benefit uh, from this? And so the, the teams are looking into that in quite some detail. But the usual kind of applications are there for like portfolio optimization, risk allocation, rebalancing, but then using like machine learning technologies to look at like fraud detection and KYC and AML type work. Everything I've just mentioned are the big problems for banks. Like these are just the really big, hard, computationally intensive problems that every financial services company goes through. And so by having a new tool in the toolbox, we're exploring whether it's going to be possible or not to um, take on some of those big problems. Yeah, I was listening recently to to UK payments and identity expert David Birch, and he was talking about how the total cost of the financial services industry to society in terms of, of the cost as a percentage of GDP, how it had grown from 1% to 2% over, you know, over the past decade, primarily as a result of a lot of the additional AML and KYC uh, and probably broader fraud costs that you allude to. So being able to have new strategies to attack that more efficiently to maintain robust standards without that broader cost is, I'm um, sure, front of mind. I guess the other aspect from financial services is uh, whilst we see some of those you know, very proactive opportunities you've just described, we're also generally pretty concerned about some of the uh, the security implications and, and the threats to the existing encryption standards we rely on today. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that and perhaps how we should be thinking about our quantum preparedness or the the emergence perhaps of quantum resistant encryption really keen for your thoughts there yeah sure thing so one of the algorithms that you can run on a quantum computer that uses a different kind of math and takes advantage of a different kind of physics is a particular algorithm called shor's algorithm named after a physicist a mathematician named peter shor uh, s-h-o-r he's a, a researcher at mit now back in the 90s at bell labs he developed this algorithm and the algorithm can only be run on a very large scale quantum computer. You would need something a lot bigger than what we have available today. And I'm talking like orders of magnitude that will take us some decades to, to build this computer. But this algorithm, if you could run it on a sufficiently capable quantum computer, would be able to run in such a way that you could efficiently break some of the encryption standards that we use today. So that the foundation of the internet and the foundation of banking. So the challenge with that is what should we be doing about that today? You know, if quantum computers are going to be developed and that in some time, probably decades, there'll be what we call a cryptographically relevant quantum computer, is there something that we should be doing today to address that future potential threat? And so the advice from governments around the world, and I'll talk specifically about the US right now, but the US has gone through a process with the National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST, to define a set of new encryption standards that are called post-quantum encryption. 
And so th these post-quantum crypto standards, or PQC, they've gone through a selection process for that. They've started to enter the final stages of making those recommendations. The president right now has issued a advisory to all of the government agencies that they should start adopting these new standards as their cryptographic basis from now on. And so at AWS, we have a responsibility to our customers to also make available these encryption standards. And so across the AWS suite of cryptographic tools that we use today, tools like the key management service. So at AWS, we've got a responsibility to our customers to make available these new cryptographic standards to uh, our customers through, through the tools we offer today. And so we're doing that. And other cloud companies are doing that. There's a lot of advisory work that's happening right now in the security community to help players sort of make that transition from the existing cryptographic standards that we use to these new ones in the post-quantum crypto world. Michael, there's a lot of uncertainty around the the timeframes, and uh, and I know this is a very difficult one uh, to predict. We hear a lot of talk. Some some will say that we're six years away. Some will say we're 15 years away, that we're decades away from having a genuine quantum computing capability or at what point that's achievable at scale. Just curious on your view, and I appreciate this is very much an area of uncertain futures, but you know whether you have an order of magnitude or whether there's a couple of key variables that will shape that that you could point to? The one thing that we know for sure is that building a quantum computer is very, very difficult. And that every time we feel like we've made some advancement, we discover that there's new challenges that need to be overcome. And that's part of the fun of this field right now. Like it's an, an extremely challenging technological endeavor, but we've made incredible progress over the last 10 years. 10 years ago, you could not access a quantum computer. There were some available in you know, university labs and physics departments sort of down in the basement. And today, you know, AWS and others, you know, we make them available to anyone in the world to, to work with now. They're early stage devices and they've got limited capability and you know, no one's really using them in, in production capability today. They're, they're research machines, but they are larger scale. They're a lot more capable, they're accessible. And so we're seeing a speed up in the, the amount of development that's happening. So we've got a long road ahead of us, but when we look back, we're sort of surprised at how far we've come in like yeah. the last uh, couple of years. That gives us a lot of optimism that as we continue to do this, we will continue to gain momentum and hopefully reach the point where we can deliver what we call a commercial quantum advantage, like that point where a quantum computer can do something at a price performance increase than what the best available classical alternative can do, sort of that crossover point between what we could do on a classical computer versus what we can do on a quantum today. That's some years away yet. There's some big challenges in front of us to do that, but there's a lot of optimism in the community that we're building momentum. We are going to make that, but there's plenty of work to be done between here and there to uh, to make that a reality. Absolutely, you've alluded there that you know quite often there's new challenges that you can't foresee that suddenly emerge after each milestone or each breakthrough. So this may be a bit of a, a nebulous or never-ending question, perhaps, but at this point in time, perhaps, what are some of the key engineering challenges that developers of quantum computers are facing. So there's a couple, and I won't go too deep into how we build these things on a general audience podcast like this, but there's kind of two really big challenges right now, and they're related. And one is how do we build higher quality quantum computers that drive out the noise that can get it introduced to these quantum computers? And so we need fabrication facilities that can adapt what they do today with classical computer chips to build quantum chips. And that is a difficult process in itself. 
And as we learn more about what it takes to scale these computers, the community needs better and better facilities in fabrication. We need new material science. We need new materials to be able to include on these chips as they get fabbed up and go through a testing process and, and understand what's going on at the foundational level on each of these chips. And so just going through the fab process in itself is you know, teaching us a lot about what it's going to take to build these at scale. And the second issue, and this has been a well-known and well-studied issue for as long as quantum computing has been around, is how do we address error correction or fault tolerance in quantum computers? Quantum computers are extremely susceptible to noise and to error. We're working with a different kind of physics. The behavior is very, very small. And so the likelihood of an error creeping into your calculations you know, as it works with the chip is very, very high. And there are some fundamental reasons in quantum physics why it's so difficult to detect and correct errors. And the overhead associated with building error correction codes is extremely high. So every time we make a very high quality qubit at the base of a quantum computer, building the extra technology that sits alongside that to correct any errors in that qubit sort of adds to the scale and adds to the problem. And so every time we take a step forward, we're compounding the issue of complexity by having to add all this error correction sort of technology around the outside of it. Yeah. And so that's, that's one of the big challenges in quantum computing right now is how do we efficiently do error correction and introduce this technology into the fab process. Uh, if we're able to crack that and we're able to introduce you know, what we call error-corrected quantum computers or fault-tolerant quantum computers, that's when we're going to really accelerate this new capability to market. Which I think probably underlines a bit of where you started in in stressing that we are still very much at an early stage and, and the research emphasis. Yeah, are there particular things we should be looking out for in terms of you know, the next milestones on the quantum journey? Yeah, this is an incredibly exciting time for quantum computing. I think over the, the coming years, we're going to see um, new devices from new manufacturers that have unique properties uh, to them. There's been a lot of lessons learned over the last couple of years in making sort of the first generation or first class of quantum computers available to the world. And so the manufacturers of these devices, you know, they've designed into their architecture some really significant improvements around like error correction and control and uh, you know, advanced features so that we can make the most of these. Over the next year or so, I expect we'll see a number of new quantum computing devices from existing manufacturers and also some new entrants to the field become available. And that'll be an exciting time because all of the researchers in this world that have been using these machines, we get to rerun all of those benchmarking applications, we get to test again, you know, the computational chemistry work, we get to look at the molecules again, or maybe go for a bigger molecule. We get to take on the applications that we've looked at with each of our customers and sort of rerun it and sort of re-baseline what that performance curve looks like. And every time we get to add a new dot to the performance chart as quantum computer scale, what kind of performance increase should we expect? we get a better understanding of what the intersection will be with classical computing. That'll be an exciting kind of phase that we go through as a community as new computers become available, new technologies on those computers, and we get to continue testing those algorithms. I also think there'll be new innovations on the algorithmic side. There's a lot of computer science that's being done in this space. We're seeing improvements all the time in some of even like the foundational algorithms of quantum compute where people will put kind of a new twist on that algorithm. And that'll give us a better scaling factor or a more efficient use of the technology. 
that will unlock new capabilities as well. And we often get surprised like that there'll be a, a new adaption to an existing algorithm that'll be important. It's a combination of the hardware milestones, new algorithm milestones. And finally, we'll start to see the impact of some like very large scale government investment into this space. Practically every major economy around the world is making some kind of like strategic investment into quantum computing, quantum technologies. You know, it's seen as a critical sovereign technology. Um, you know, certainly Australia does. There was a, the list of national critical technologies that came out a few years ago. And there is now a national quantum technology strategy that the Australian government you know, put forward just a couple of months back. And so we're seeing money flow into the research sector, into the industrial sector around this technology. And so in the next few years, we'll see the fruit uh, of those investments. And that'll be, that'll be an exciting time. Michael, thank you for sharing those those valuable insights. I think it's been very eye-opening, I'm, I'm sure, for for many of our audience. And I really appreciate the way that you're able to give us a snapshot of the technology, but also, I think, a great overview of the current landscape and what to look for next. If I can recap, perhaps, on a couple of things that, that really stood out for me, I think, firstly, the emphasis you gave that it is a very early-stage technology, that it is primarily in the research domain and that, that most of the customers you're dealing with are, are research customers. The use for particular algorithms, I think this focus view on the use case, I think there's probably some misconceptions that quantum is going to just simply sur supersede or replace all existing classical computing. And I think you've given us a good outline there of the distinction of it being uh, optimal for particular circumstances. The financial services snapshot was an interesting one. Your point of it being uh, the industry as being a lead adopter in the last five years, particularly in the US, and that it is with some of those major US banks actually having their own research capabilities. The linkage to, to Shaw's algorithm and the encryption challenge and the point you made there about the NIST post-quantum encryption standards. But I think also some of the points you made earlier around the uh, applications in other areas that I think will have some really substantive potential benefits for society, the drug discoveries and the adhesives for, for batteries. And we know that we have such a crucial shortage of a lot of the minerals that we use in battery technology at the moment around the world. Lastly, the point you closed on there of the growing government investment and the recognition as a crucial sovereign technology, I think is one that really resonates. So a great tour across the landscape and, and, and a great heads up on what to look for. Michael, it's been terrific. And thanks for joining us on Nap Digital Next. Brad, it's been a pleasure. And if I'll leave your audience with one thing, like this is an early stage technology, but it's a very accessible technology too. Any one of your listeners could sign into AWS this afternoon and use a real quantum computer and learn through experience and running an algorithm and trying something out on one of these uh, devices. And I think it's an exciting area, but one that you know, anyone can access through a cloud-first environment. So I encourage people to do that. It's a great call out. And I think uh, a lot of people probably do not appreciate that accessibility. So thank you for calling that out. It's been a great discussion here with Michael. Uh, ahead on NAB Digital Next, we're going to speak with Ivo Yenik of the World Bank's Consultative Group to assist the poor. He's going to join us from Washington and talk through some of the work he's done on the opportunities for open banking to support financial inclusion. So please join us again then. And thanks for being with us on NAB Digital Next.